Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name's Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. On today's episode, I want to welcome Malcolm Stern. Malcolm has over 30 years of experience as a psychotherapist, author, and presenter. He's the co-founder of Alternatives at St. James Church Piccadilly in London and runs groups internationally. He's the author of Falling in Love, Staying in Love and sailed on the Rainbow Warrior with Greenpeace in the 1980s. Malcolm's latest book, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, is an accumulation of wisdom he has gained from working with world leaders and the grief he experienced after his daughter Melissa's suicide in 2014. Malcolm, thank you so much for coming and chatting to me today. Uh, this is my first time meeting you. Actually, best thing about doing this podcast is it, it's meant that I've been able to interact and build relationships with people from all over the world that I wouldn't have reached out to otherwise. So I've read up on you and you've got an incredible story and you know so many amazing things that you've done and are doing. So I'm super excited to have you on here. So I just want to first of all say thank you for having this chat with me. Thank you, Nick. It's great. It's really my pleasure. So how have you been? I mean, it's a pretty crazy time in the world right now. How, how are you going? It is crazy, but I see it a bit like a, a reset button's been pressed. And although there's an enormous amount of suffering, there's also a sort of a sense of having to slow down and take stock of ourselves. So I'm really sort of seeing that it's shifting me. And originally I was sort of just wanting it to be over. And now I'm, I'm wanting to see what it's doing. It feels like a difficult birth that's happening for us here on planet Earth, but a birth that was necessary. So I'm just following the, 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 the platform that's around. I think it's a great way to look at it. And it, it, I mean, it, it is, and the world does need a lot of that. We, we have been overloaded with, um, I mean, technology, social media, just there's so many negatives so that we can look at positives in this. I think hopefully people will start to do that more. It feels very divided at the moment. And I'm sure a lot of the things we talk about um, in this conversation are going to touch on these kind of concepts. But, you know, I, I think that's what I've been trying to do. I mean, not successfully all the time. I get caught up in thinking, God, when am I going to, you know, have my life back? But I think it's so important that we do what you just said and try and find these positives. So important. I've decided to move out of the city. I live in London. Mm. I have a flat in, in Tartness in Devon, which I've rented out, which is in the West Country, which is a very beautiful part of the world, near nature, and, uh, and I've just decided I don't want to be in London. I'm, I'll to and fro to London, but actually what I really want is to be in nature. So that's one of the things that's happened for me as a result of this, this lockdown and uh, this coronavirus emergency. That's great. Yeah, it's been that, that catalyst for that change, which, yeah, an- another positive thing. Uh, before we go into it, are you able to, and just, I mean, because we're going to cover a lot of things, just a brief background on, you know, how, how you basically got to doing what you do um, how you got into this field? Yeah, so I'm a, a psychotherapist. I've been in practice for around 30 years. Uh, I've also written a couple of books, and I've just written my third book, um, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. And uh, I, I'm also the founder, the co-founder of Alternatives, which is one of the biggest lecture series on things alternative in the UK. And we've had people speak there like 
Eckhart Tolle, Marianne Williamson, Ram Das, Thich Nhat Hanh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. A lot of the big players in the in in this in that world have passed through. And like you said said to me, you've met a lot of people doing this podcast. Well, I've been meeting some amazing people over the last thirty years, um, and and just really sort of learning about some of the, the the movers and shakers in the world of personal development. And I've been wedded to this world for well for decades. Yeah, well, uh, and and did you? I mean, is it something you felt like you always wanted to get into? Did you, um, was it circumstance that led you into it or sort of a, a combination? Well, I was a, a real estate agent um, and, uh, and I knew that that didn't feel right to me. I feel like my empathic skills were really useful in that field. And, and uh, I had a real a revelation. Um, I was around at a, a friend's house. I was in my, in my early 20s and he had this tiny little dot of something on blotting paper which turned out to be LSD and uh, so there were a few of us sitting there and we, we sort of took this acid and and suddenly like the universe changed in front of my eyes and I'm saying to my friends this is all fantastic and they're going you're stone man you'll come down and to this day some of my friends still say he never came down from that trip but actually <laughs> I, I, took it, I took it once and I'm, I, this is not a recommendation of, of, uh, of hallucinogenics or drugs at all but I saw something that, that the, the world was a different place to what I'd always believed. But I'd always known somewhere inside myself that that place was real. And since then, I've worked a lot on, with meditation and other practices to try and align myself with that more profound part of myself that doesn't get caught up. Of course, I still do, but that mm. doesn't get caught up so often in the daily rubbish. Yeah, I, I love that. And I mean, I think, do you think a lot of that is similar to me not from you know my journey being through that exact experience but I uh was so suppressed and going down a pathway that I didn't want to go down and um it took me a long time to be able to to really and I felt the same thing you're talking about and I listened to you talking about this which I found really interesting about that feeling inside that we we don't fit in or we don't feel like we feel like something's wrong and I feel like we ignore that in life a lot of the time. And when we ignore it, that's when negative things happen because you've just become, you can't be happy if you're going against your intuition. And I feel like a lot of people don't have the courage to do that. So it's more than courage. I think it's also about having support to do that because one of the, well, a couple of things I've written about in my book, one is about finding your radar and there's something about tuning into that intuition and learning to strengthen it. Now, because I've been running psychotherapy groups for more than 30 years, I'm constantly in a process of flexing that muscle. So my intuition is actually very strong. And, mm-hmm. and I find myself thinking things sometimes, you know, tuning in some, in some ways that I really don't even know where it's come from. But often it has a, a strand of connectedness. The other thing I wrote about um, in, in, in my book is about finding your Sangha, which is a Buddhist word for spiritual community. And I think in order to learn to trust our intuition, we have to first of all look after ourselves in terms of meditation, diet, and other things that feed this body, that help this body to be a pure instrument. But also we have to surround ourselves with the, the, the I Ching, or do you know if you come across the I Ching, which is the Chinese oracle? Um, it mm. says, um, until we reach a certain stage in our evolution, not only do we have the need for the support of others of like mind, we have a duty to seek that support. Now, I feel like that's been part of my journey of actually both giving support, certainly at a therapeutic level, but also mm. receiving support and, and having around me people who, 
who I trust to help hold me in a place of authenticity and integrity. Mm-hmm. And which is so critical. And again, if I draw back just from my own experience with that, I know that uh, in the past when I had the wrong people around me, I, I was at this crossroads where I'd done this work on myself but um, and knew who I wanted to be but still had these people that were very, you know, there was polarity there. They were so against what I wanted to be and that constantly, that didn't support it. And I, I guess, so that's a really important thing for anyone listening to this as well. Would you say that, whatever path you're on, just having people that are like-minded and supportive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you make a practice with those like-minded, supportive people. I have two sessions a week. One is a, is a dyad, a, a, a pairing with a, a very mm. good friend of mine who lives in Devon. And we do an hour a week where we say half an hour each um, and really just talking whatever's coming up. And the other one's just holding a space of listening and then reflecting back what they've heard. And then we switch it around. And for me, that's very important to have a space where I can, which I can speak into and find out what's going on inside me with, that, with whatever issues I'm dealing with that week. The other group I've got is a triad. There's three of us. And we, we also meet about once a week for an hour and a quarter. And again, we take time to really listen to each other and see what's going on behind the story. That's where the interest is. We've mm-hmm. all got the stories of our lives, but what's going on behind it is the place where the, the magic is, where the place for transformation can exist. How do you get to that place? Because, I mean, these stories are so strong and powerful and hard to overcome. And, I, you know, I, I guess even when we have that self-awareness of, okay, I know why I'm behaving in this way because I've been feeding myself these negative stories for the last, you know, 30 years and it happened because of X, but they're often they're so powerful that we still can't get past it. Like, how, how can we go about doing that? Well, first, I think you've got to have the recognition that they are powerful and that you don't wrestle with them, you don't try and get rid of them, you integrate them, you find the way that, what's the story got to teach me? What has this life experience got to teach me? And I'll give you an example, because a lot of the way I've written in in all of the books that I've written um, Mm. is is to give examples from the therapy room. And because they're like illustrations, instead of drawings, I've got these stories of how people have gone through something and made a change in their lives. So there was a guy who used to come to my groups regularly, and he'd been abused by his mother. And he used to shock all the participants by talking about what would happen and go into graphic detail. And there was something I realized after we'd done this half a dozen times in different groups that he'd been in, that there was something in him that was relishing and enjoying this particular experience. It's like he was almost like he was sucking the blood out of this experience. And there came a point where I challenged him and I just said, you know, you've told this story a lot of times and what's it doing for you? And it took a while to take him away from that. But first there was the consciousness that actually the story is not helping you. you you're, you're living on the shock factor, but you're also re-traumatizing yourself. And it's almost getting vicarious thrills out of seeing other people's reactions to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is fascinating. And I'm sure that is very common. I've, I've seen that in so many people where it becomes your identity. And even if you don't want it to be, I guess it becomes the comfort zone of this is who I am now. This is how I express myself or how I identify myself. And um, it can be so tough to get out of that. So it's super interesting. And also this is, this is how I am. This is how I am forever. So I'm, I'm quite um, sort of uh, vigilant about when clients talk about this is what I do. Actually, if this is what I have done. Yeah. Because if this is what I do, you're dooming yourself to live out the same stuff again and again and again. If you can mm-hmm. see that you've often approached something in this particular way, and then 
something comes up for you that you could do this differently, then there's the possibility of having consciousness around the way you respond to your external stimulus. And I know yeah. for me that um, uh, the, the change happened when my daughter took her own life. And it's almost like sometimes we need a major life shock to shift us away from you say, how do you, how do, you do it? I don't mm. think we consciously do it at all. I think mm. life does it to us. And mm. Jung talks about everything being synchronicity. Things will happen in our lives and we have the opportunity to, it's almost like to put the pieces together again in a different way. So it's a bit like the coronavirus. Are we going to go back to normal? Or are we going to find a way of making a new normal something which is much healthier? Mm. Um, so mm. for me, with, with my, when my daughter took her own life, I couldn't see life in the same way again. And I remember a friend of mine saying, you're going to think you're normal, but you, you will not be thinking normally for quite a long time. And that was true. And that sort of almost like took all the pieces in me, shook them up and moved them into a different place. So that even for a long time, the shock was there. So I couldn't even grieve. And I thought, is there something wrong with me that I can't even grieve? You know, obviously I felt sad, but it's like I couldn't really yeah. let go. But that, that single incident in my life has changed me more than any other incident. Uh, it's a heavy price to pay, but it's also a price where I'm seeing that our tragedies are also our opportunities and our, our potentials for becoming more whole. And what I've found as a therapist since Melissa's mm. suicide, that I can actually go to the places which I couldn't go to before, where things are so shocking that it's almost horrifying to be able to touch into those. So people who've been abused, who've had their families wiped out, who've, um, who've gone through enormous suffering. Mm. How do you go with those people? Mm. And I think the only way we can truly go with those people is if we've had some experience ourselves, as I'm sure you've had to be doing the work you're doing, is we've mm. had some, some experience ourselves of, of having traveled to the, the depths and seeing what we bring back from there. Yeah. And, and thank you for sharing that. And uh, a lot of people do talk about, you know, how you, you, it often does take that just extreme something extreme to really cause uh, that change and um, I, I guess when it comes to, to suicide as well I, I, I mean I did a, a TEDx talk on it and I was learning you know a lot about it and even statistically you know some of the things shocked me every 40 seconds or roughly every 40 seconds someone around the world commits suicide and um, you know it's not talked about enough uh, in society and I guess, do you feel like if if we were able to communicate things like suicide, communicate things like you were saying in your therapy when you're dealing with people, if these deep, dark secrets, to really be able to confront and talk about them and understand that on a societal level it's actually okay to talk about this, would you see that that would make a big change? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, in fact, I, I'm, I'm a regular uh, presenter and, and the front person at a, at a conference called compassionate mental health in the UK. And uh, they invited me to, to, to be part of that conference about six months after Melissa's death. And uh, they had no idea that I'd lost a child to suicide. But we're looking at a whole area of suicide, mental health, and all sorts of different things. And one of the things I do is I open up the conference with talking Melissa's story through. And often when I'm speaking, I find myself flooded with tears. Right now I'm not, but I didn't know if I would be or wouldn't be if I'm, I'm talking mm -hmm. about it. And I'm sort of open to it coming up. I don't want it to come up in a, in a business meeting, but I, I'm open to mm -hmm. it coming up in, in talks that I give. And what I've found is that by speaking about it, 
there is a cathartic element to that that has helped me not to bury it because I don't want to forget her. I also mm -hmm. don't want to be crushed by that as well. So I've got to find my, my way of, ma of uh, navigating through this. So telling our story is one thing. The other thing is, is finding creative ways of dealing with it. So I was working with mm -hmm. a client the other day and his girlfriend's um, cousin committed suicide. And he said that he, he's not really an artist, although he likes painting. He had this really deep urge to paint the cousin. And he, he, he spent hours and hours and hours capturing her essence. And he said after he'd done that, something very calming came over him and his girlfriend. So in the process of the creativity, there's also that, that place of speaking it out, cathartic it out. And for me, writing my book, Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, which was inspired by Melissa's life and death, mm. uh, was a cathartic exercise. And I, I remember talking to, to the guy who was helping me write it and saying, you know, if no one ever read this and if it never got published, it would still be incredibly valuable for me. Yeah. So for me, getting it out, letting it be there, not having to hide it. We often yeah. say to people, how are you? And they go, I'm fine. And what I often say is, yeah, fucked up, insecure, neurotic and emotionally unstable. Um, we pretend to <laughs> see every photo of smiling yeah. face on Facebook. Everyone's really happy and life is amazing what's happening to them. And we don't really dare go to these dark places yeah. where actually our lives have been shaken to within an inch of losing our minds. Yeah. Got so many, yeah, incredible points you're making in there. And I love what you said as well about, you know, with the book that, you know, it's something that you would have done regardless. You're not doing it for... I need to sell a million copies of this. And, and, you know, by the way, I, you know, found it very impressive that you had Eckhart Tolle and uh, Craig David, you know, saying very nice things about the book. Um, I love Eckhart Tolle. Um, but you're not doing it for that reason. You're doing it. I think that's something that in life we need to understand in Western society, we've lost. It's become about what's next. What's next. What can I, how can I progress up the ladder? How can I do this? How can I make more money? How can I, whatever it is. And then, you know, you, you're on this hamster wheel and people get to, you know, a certain age and they think, hang on, I've got all the external things that were meant to make me happy. I still feel miserable. And then you question who you are. And it's like, it, it's just this, I feel like we're educated in the wrong way. We should be taught, uh, you know, to be able to understand ourselves and, you know, operate on a, an emotional level first, get all of that right, get our inner world okay. And then obviously try and have a career and, you know, achieve things. But regardless of what happens, we know we're going to be okay. But we're taught the opposite way, which is really dangerous. Well, I think we have to find our way through. It's almost like we have to hack our way through the forests mm. sort of around us until we can create a space. Like Eckhart Tolle was a, uh, used to live on, sleep on park benches. He went to the depths yeah. of his own despair in order to become uh, and this is quite rare that you have an awakening like his, where it was just there was a, a moment where he was awake. And uh, I've, I've actually, I, I'm, I was having lunch with people the other day um, for someone's birthday, and I was sitting next to this woman, a very ordinary sort of woman, you know, just chatting away. And she had um, gone through a process where she had had a very difficult breakup with her last boyfriend and was feeling all this rage. And she picked up a book by Stephen Levine that said something about. Um, a man who was dying complaining about his cough and Stephen Levine said to him, you're not the cough. And she said, she suddenly realized that she wasn't the grief. And mm. for a week, mm. she was in a place of altered consciousness and she came back to her normality. 
but nothing could ever be the same again. Something had been awoken in her. Just at that particular moment, it was ripe that all the pieces were in place. So I think for me with Melissa's death, mm, it's not like I've become mm. enlightened. I don't feel that at all. And I don't, interestingly, when I looked at the book, I was talking to someone the other day and saying, um, you know, I thought I'd written this book, which is to educate people, which I, of course I have. But actually what I've realized I've done is I've written my own handbook. This is my practice book. These exercises, these chapters, these different practices are practices that I need to keep up in order to stay whole. And some of them are like meditation, our listening, our kindness, um, our, our gathering with people of like minds, um, our learning around death, um, and, and also seeing the transformation that can come through suffering, mm-hmm. not underestimating mm-hmm. what it does to people as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are they, so I know, I'd read you've got sort of 10 principles in the book. Um, what you've just sort of mentioned there, that's sort of some of those 10 principles. Are you able to give us a bit more of a um, overview of, of those principles and you know what they involve yeah sure so i'm going to pick up my book this is it yeah i'm really proud of it uh, they've done a really good job of the cover i'm really pleased with that and uh, i know came up with a quote at the last possible minute so you got him on the front of the cover so um right. so, um, so the, the principles of this one is follow your radar and um we have to learn to be able to tune in to, you talked before about the intuition, and I talk about the radar. We have to tune into that sixth sense, which is alive in all of us, but it's been squashed by our intellect often, by life experiences, by having to make a living, by doing all of this stuff. And so we override the fact that actually inside us is the most extraordinary wise being. And some of the meditations I've done over the years, that I've taken part in over the years, have been about accessing that wise person that lives inside, that still small voice they can't be shaken by whatever happens externally. So following the radar is a way of getting into practice with that. Mm. Um, and the next is bearing witness. And, uh, and, and we have to, as a therapist, if I try and fix people, I'm not doing them a favor. But if I'm really able to be with them in whatever it is they're with, if I'm really able to journey with them and travel with them and open myself around them and bear witness to them, then there's something profound that can happen because I'm not trying to fix anything. Mm. Uh, The next is Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, which is the title of the book. Um, And that's two things. One, it's it's internal, that we have to be able to face our own stuff, our own shit, and to deal with it. Um, And to deal with it, ruthlessly is the wrong word, compassionately is the right word, really. But to deal with it in such a way that it's like pulling out a weed. You have to get the whole root out as well. So yeah. we have to really learn to face ourselves and to come to terms with the places inside ourselves we don't like very much. And then turning that to another, we have to be able to speak our truth to each other in a way that can be heard. So if you say something to me and I say to you, well, you're obviously just an idiot, you're either going to respond one of two ways. You're going to withdraw or you're going to come out fighting. You're certainly going to go, ah, oh, let me understand what the inner idiot in me is trying to say. But if I say something to you that really has respect for who you are, but also says, I find this difficult and try and take as much responsibility for my response rather than they're doing it to me. Then I start to learn the practice of slaying your dragons. And and actually for me, that's, that's what's made this book unique. It's a unique title. It's, it's a title. It's, it's a phrase I've used in my workshops for for a couple of decades. Mm. um, We have to learn to speak our truth. And the two golden rules in slaying your, your dragons with compassion is one, speak your truth, say what's true for you. Two, never hurt another more than is necessary. 
So if we always try to practice never mm. hurting other people, we'll tiptoe around certain people. But sometimes we have to say something that's not going to be easy to be heard. But if we're really willing to go there, there's a real skill in learning that. Yeah. Um, then there's, uh, there's chapters around your relationships, how, how your relationships can educate you. Um, there's something profound about having to marry your neurosis to another neurosis. We, we get an idea when we fall in love that uh, we, we get what I call the temporary lifting of critical faculties. We meet another and we think, oh my God, they're so amazing. And of course, at one level, of course they're amazing. Their essence is amazing. And falling in love takes us to the essence. But then at some point, it's a bit like the fall from the Garden of Eden. We, we have to come to terms with the fact that here's another flawed human being just like us. And then can we work the practice of love? Then there's the ricochet effect. Sometimes I'll be working in, um, again, this is one of my own phrases. I'll be working in a group and someone will say something and someone else will just be flooded with tears because it's brought up something that they had buried inside themselves, but it's been triggered by someone else. So it's how to work with the ricochets that come up and some of the practices we can do around that. Then there's allowing your suffering to transform you. And um, I think that Michael Mead, who's a, who's a great uh, sort of sage and mystic, um, says that in, in order to become who we truly are, not only does our heart have to break, it has to break again and again. And actually we think that it's, you know, the, the terrible things that happen to us are tragedies and sometimes they are. But if, if I look back on my life and I see the most difficult periods of my life, I can also see the biggest growth spurts of my life. Then there's create a sangha, create a, a spiritual community around you. It doesn't have to be people you live with. It can be people that you are in relationship with and you find a way of, of working with them. And then there's something that's really important as well, which is find your purpose. And I think if we have our purpose, then we truly have the possibility of living from a much more a profound place because we've, we've got meaning in our lives. Yeah. And I feel like I'm still vibrant. I'm 70 years old. And I still feel like I'm vibrant at 70 because I still feel that my purpose is alive in me. And um, I wonder if I can quote you um, George Bernard Shaw's quote about purpose, because this is for me is one of the most profound quotes that I've um, come across. And again, I put this in at the beginning of the chapter. This is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose, recognized by yourself as a mighty one. That being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community. And as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle for me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I've got hold of for the moment. And I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. That's beautiful. That's magic. It's really magic. Yeah. You know, it gives meaning and purpose to our lives as well. Then uh, there's two more chapters. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. too, uh, too lengthy, but um, the, the next is break the spell. And, uh, and that's really that we can often be given spells. And one of those magic spells is a doctor will say to you, you've got six months to live. And immediately you're under the spell. You've, been, you've taken on this reality that you've got six months to live and you start to prepare yourself for having six months to live. And a friend of mine um, was told about 20 years ago that he had 18 months to live. He had a virulent cancer and started being paid out by his life insurance. And um, 
he went and did, I'm not saying this works for everyone, but he went and he decided I'm not going to just buckle under to this spell that's been cast on me. And he, took, he, he went to Mexico, did the Gerson process, which is a, a very intense process of fasting and, and, and meditation and practice. And 20 years later, he's in really good health still, and, and the doctors can't understand it. Um, wow. And so this is one of the spells we get. The other is a spell, if you're in relationship and you're told by your partner, which may be a projection of who they are as well, that you're selfish, for example, they've cast a spell on you. You are then carrying around, well, am I selfish? And in all of us, there is an element of selfishness. So of course, there'll be some truth, but it starts to take its roots. And for me, it's finding our own reality to break the spell. And the last chapter is about befriending death. But actually, it's a part of our lives. And the Buddhists have it that we need to face death every day. And I do quite a few meditations when I'm, when I'm doing guided meditations, when I'm listening to guided meditations on what would it be like if we, were, if we had a year to live? What would it be like if we were to die tomorrow? Uh, what would we want to, to deal with? And so there's something for me about facing the fact that death is an inevitable part of life. So that's the book I've put together, which of course I've put together as my own instruction manual for how to mm. live. But I thought when I was writing it, I was writing instruction manual for people who are going to read it. And of course, at some level, that is true. No, fantastic. And thank you for sharing it. And I think we could do basically one podcast on every chapter of that. There's so many, um, so much to delve into in it. And, and by the way, I also, when you said you're 70, I was, I was shocked. I was like, what the hell are you, <laughs> you don't look 70. You feel, and from, you know, the, um, I mean, I'm only talking to you over a computer, but I feel like, you know, the energy you're putting off and you, it's crazy. Like, uh, it's, it's so good, but I completely, I, I really, you know, I think it's so important, the stuff you're saying about meaning and purpose and, um, finding, and, and the, again, this is for people listening to this. I know that, um, from the work I do, so many people are struggling to find meaning and purpose. And I feel like a lot of it's because we're, um, we're taught that we need to find, it's attaching ourselves to these different external things rather than just having this meaning and taking that step back. And it, it's completely right what you're saying. It's such a powerful thing because once you do have that, that meaning and that reason for what you're doing, it doesn't really matter what the end outcome is because you're going to do you're going to follow this same meaning daily anyway. You're going to follow that same purpose. So, And then we have to ask the question, what's our life for? And, and yeah. our life is to, give, to help the process of evolution. And I think that we're in an incredible learning process. And if we look at it, we can see that, you know, maybe in three million years' time, if we survive, the humankind might all be like Christ's or Buddhas. But actually, yeah. right now, we're, we're pretty dumb. And we're having to evolve in order to survive. And we may or may not come through this, but even if we don't, we still got to give everything we can to that process. So for me, I'm no longer thinking, what's my ambition? Well, I want to make a million pounds. I don't want to make a million pounds. I mean, be happy to have it, but it's like, yeah. that's not my ambition any longer. What's my ambition? To be used, to be used by the force of life and to actually mm. keep feeling like I've got some value, um, not from an egotistical stance that, yeah. you know, oh, hey, I have real value, I'm great, but more from a stance so I'm actually doing what I was brought here on earth to do and feeling like some, some purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, what I try and think of when I get caught up in ego, I try and remind myself if I was on my deathbed looking back on my life, what would be the things I would care about? And normally it's going to be family. It's going to, it's always, you know, the sort of work that I've tried to keep doing, you know, in mental health, doing these talks, but they're the kind of things when I simplify everything, you realize, Oh, hang on all these other things and 
they're not what you're going to really look back on and care about. You, you know, you're not going to look back and think, oh, I remember that time when I was, you know, 45 years old and I did this business deal worth $2 million. You know, that's probably not going to be one of those, you know, like meaningful moments you look back on. But what I find difficult and what I'm interested to ask you is how do you operate in the middle where you don't get caught up in, you know, being that the need to need more and compete with everyone else and all those, that's that external side of it. Our life has different seasons <clears throat> and I feel like I'm coming to the winter of my life now. So I'm much less focused on having to earn a living, having to mm. play out stuff with my ego. But I did, did all that when I was in my forties and even fifties. And actually the virus has helped me see this as well is that I don't want to be just flat out doing. Yeah. I want to spend time being in nature. I want to spend time nourishing myself, spending time in contemplation, as well as carrying on doing the things that really light my fire. Like it's really, I love talking to you. I feel like there's a chemistry that's happening here that's really bringing out the best in me as well. So I, I find that I've, I've also enjoyed doing interviews. So I've interviewed at Alternatives. I've interviewed people like Terence Stamp, the actor, and Ben Oakery, the mm. Booker winning prize uh, author and poet, um, and Marianne Williamson. Um, who was the Democratic candidate for the, the United States um, uh, presidency, or wow. she was trying to be a Democratic candidate. And so I've, I've found that um, I enjoyed that process as well, of, of, of getting to know people, finding out what makes them tick. And actually, but what I really want now is, is some time walking on the coastal paths and um, being with friends and um, letting nature educate me. I'd love to travel, but that may not be part of this new, this new reality we're, we're part of. But I've done a lot of traveling. Yeah. I've toured yeah. places like China, which is you know, fascinating. So I've seen different cultures. So I, I, yeah. I've loved being a tourist of life where I've, where I've uh, or um, what I see more of as a pilgrim, where I'm gathering things from various environments. I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, from what you're saying there as well, I think that looking at, you know, life rather than, because I think we can get caught up in um, I need everything, every single component of it to be all all happen at once. And if you can look at it, like you said, look at it like seasons where, okay, I'm in this season right now where, you know, it might, I'm, I might be more career focused and I'm still trying to get these other parts of my life happening, but that's really taking up most of my time. That's okay because when the time's right, I'll, I'll then put more time into the other thing that's important to me. Um, would that be a good way to approach it to stop that overwhelm of needing to do everything at once? Absolutely. We have to live our purposes and we have to find them and we have to let them unravel. We have to let them evolve rather than try and sledgehammer them through. If we sledgehammer them through, they tend to knock us out because it, it can be too much. Mental health and wellbeing are real issues in the construction industry. Men in construction are twice as likely to take their own life compared to the ones who work in other industries. And that's just not good enough. With John Holland's help, we want to make a change. We've joined together to have honest conversations about mental health, life, and stories of people who have overcome challenges. When we hear about stories and struggles that sound a bit like ours, we can learn from each other and remember that we're not alone. What's your thoughts on, I guess, in... You know, in, in the Western world, we're all taught that, you know, push at all costs, go and, and, and I know I've tried to do that in the past where I got burnt out and sometimes it actually gets results where you're 
intuition is telling you, you know this is wrong and it's not making me feel good but just push who cares it doesn't matter if you you know feel tired doesn't matter if you're sad it doesn't matter what just keep pushing and get the results that's all that matters and people do that for their whole lives sometimes and um i don't think it makes many people happy but um yeah what's your view on that i think we have to learn to sensitize ourselves and again if we use our intuition we can learn to take to hear the the small inner voice if we if we refine ourselves so that we, we're in tune with that inner voice, it'll tell us when we need to push. Now, there might be a time in our lives where we really do want to push. You know, maybe in our mm-hmm. 20s, we want to really make a name for ourselves and we'll push with everything we've got. That might be absolutely right. It's not about right and wrong, really. It's about mm-hmm. where the mm-hmm. energy is at any particular point in time. I remember studying um, Kabbalah with, with Warren Kenton and he, t- he, he gave a very interesting analogy that I, that's stuck with me ever since. He said, we can, if we like, go through the red traffic lights, but then we have to sort of uh, take the consequences of, of pushing through something that wasn't ready to be, to be opened yet. But if we're wise, we'll learn to spot when the green traffic light's there so we can actually start to go, this is the time to go forwards. This is the mm-hmm. time to hold mm-hmm. back. And um, one of my favourite authors, Hermann Hesse, um, who wrote a book called Siddhartha, um, talks about the, this, this guy who goes through a whole process in the process of awakening. And he, he gets to be very rich and to discover that's not what he wanted either. And he comes back to being a very simple being again. And he's describing what it is that sustains him. And he says to his friend, I have three skills. And with these three skills, I can achieve anything. I can think, I can wait, I can fast. And there's something about at my time of life, maybe that's more appropriate than at your time of life. But there's something about seeing when it's time to recharge and regather. Mm. We're not going to crack it all in one go. And people so often want to be, to arrive. We're actually on a journey through life anyway. There's no arrival. But there are explorations and there are are things to gather along the way. And I know that I'm wiser now at 70 than I was at 50. And it's because of how life has educated me. Yeah. And I feel much more able to get out there in the world and speak my truth because my truth feels like it's grounded. I know in my, in my 30s, um, I, I first got involved with, with what I saw as spirituality. And, um, and I used to walk around in white, in white clothes, and I used to talk with a very soft voice. And I <laughs> thought I was, I was one inch away from enlightenment. But actually what I was was just some asshole playing out this sort of like this, this sort of what I call, um, or what is called often, uh, spiritual bypassing. But actually, you, you, you know what the truths are, or you read what the truths are, but you're not really living them. You're pretending you are, you are them. So I think there's something about sense, yeah. seeing where we are at any particular point. I don't, I don't regret that time of walking around in white and feeling like I was Holy Joe, but it didn't, it didn't take me where I wanted it to take me. But I had to learn that lesson as well. Exactly. Like it's sort of being able to look at everything and as, as a lesson, and I, I, I try and look at failure now is not being failure i think the word failure is wrong it's you know i think if you can approach everything you do in life as i'm either going to learn something or i'm going to actually get the desired outcome then it's a win-win it's like well failing is really good that's when we we learn more and um we grow so it's a it's a much better way to look at things i think i was working with an organization what's called um uh, ordnance survey which are a bit map making company and um I was running this conference and the guy who was delivering the keynote speech of the conference was the guy who had invented their digital future. And what he said 
in this conference, he said, I had to fail three times. And each time I failed, it taught me something until I was able to take this forward and, and iron out all the glitches and do what needs to be done. We like to think of failing as, as, as something wrong. Actually, mm -hmm. it's just as you said, failing is something that's inevitable. If we're going to master something, it's a bit like learn to ride a bike. You're going to fall off a lot of times and then you're going to be able to get on the bike and go. As a child, you're going to learn to walk. You're going to fall over, but eventually you're going to be able to walk. And if we can yeah. have that mindset that says, do this in its right time and spot what, what are the supports you need in order to do it, but do it in its right time and don't rush to become something that you're not. Yeah, and, and what would help what helps with that as well is what you said before about realizing that there is no end destination anyway. We're rushing normally because we think if we finally arrive, then everything's finally going to be okay. All of our insecurities are going to be resolved. We're going to be, you know, find peace and happiness. And it just doesn't work like that. So it doesn't help. But that's the learning as well. We think if we find the perfect partner, we're going to be happy. And we might be yeah. for three months, six months. Um, but one of the things I've written about in the book is, is the falling in love process, which normally takes uh, anything from six, six months to two years to, to come out the other side of. Um, but actually <laughs> in, that, in that falling in love process, we think we've found bliss and, and perhaps mm. we, have, we have in that moment. And then how can we do things that really last? Yeah, it's really, um, you know, it's a, a drug-like feeling and it's attaching again, whether it's it's the same as attaching to I've achieved some career high or, you know, if if you've reached a level of fame, okay, I'm addicted to that feeling. That's It's never going to last. It's sort of what's underneath that. And in a relationship, I guess, it would be, can we sort of navigate and is there depth in that relationship that when there is no high that we can still navigate that together? I guess that would be the important part, yeah. And I think, you know, in a relationship, we've got to look for someone who can meet us at some level, at a physical, mental, uh, emotional and spiritual level. We've mm -hmm. got to be able to travel with a fellow traveller who, who can meet us in some way of, of, of some of those and they're things that can be built during the course of a relationship, but the, the basics have to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I'll get, I've got sort of five questions that are just quick answer questions we finish every interview with. But um, before I go get to that, um, just wanted to ask you just as, as a summary, I guess, for people, uh, you know, struggling with what's happening in the world right now with the coronavirus and the uncertainty, what would be, what, what advice would you give for that? I'd say number one, surround yourself with like-minded others so that you're actually with people who you can speak your truth to. Number two, take up a practice that brings you to stillness. For some, it may be meditation. For some, it might be, um, it might be physical exercise. It might be um, Tai Chi. It, might, it could be all sorts of things. Find something that helps you still yourself and do it on a regular basis. So far better to meditate for five minutes a day than to meditate for an hour and then mm -hmm. not to do it again for another month. Um, so find a practice that sort of slots you in. Uh, I would say practice kindness, recognize that everyone you come into contact with is like you, has, has had suffering in their lives and will have suffering in their lives. And if we can start to practice being kind to each other, the Dalai Lama said, my religion is kindness. If we can practice that religion of, of kindness, we can go a long way. Yeah. Um, I think that we need to be to create environments that are healing for ourselves. We need to spend time in nature and we need to spend time with the people we love. And also to recognize 
how important family is. It's very easy to sort of like to take family for granted. It's only on, on the death of my daughter that I realized how important my other children were to me. Um, and, and that it really helped me sort of go, this is absolutely key that I really yeah. focus on these relationships. No, great, great, great advice there. And yeah, I think, and, and using this time to, as looking at it as an opportunity that we've got this time right now where we can try and create a routine, like you're saying, meditating and make that part of our daily practice so that then when we do get busy again or, you know, things, life goes semi back to normal that you have that in place. I think it's, it's so important, you know, to grow and to really yeah grow to that next level we need to confront be able to you know go through fear and discomfort and look into the darkest parts of ourselves um which i yeah 100 percent you know think that's so important um i don't feel like i feel like most uh, so many people we're taught to avoid that or we try and avoid it you know what what would be to people wanting to do that how, how can you sort of start approaching that I mean, don't seek suffering deliberately, but actually if yeah. it comes up you that you've got something that's really, then resource yourself. Resource yourself with people. Perhaps you might yeah. find a therapist, perhaps you might create a friendship group, but you might do it before you're in a place of suffering. So you actually build a structure to withstand yeah. it. Um, and I would also say practice to, to be with people with whom you can be honest, where you don't have to put a brave face on things. I remember looking at a... Um, uh, something in a newspaper once, and there was this there was this picture of an eight-year-old child whose parents had both been killed in the Lockerbie bombing. And, and the paper was saying how brave this child was. He didn't shed a tear. And I thought how lunatic our, our society is that we applaud those who don't shed tears. Because actually tears are one of the ways in which the body gets rid of the debris that gathers. So that's another thing I would say is, is learn to cry. Yeah. Know who you cry with. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And I think especially for men, you know, it's still prominent that men have been taught that it's weak to cry, weak to show emotion, that, you know, that that means you're not as much of a man. And, um, you know, I know I still struggle with that. I, and I want to be able to express more and I actually pursue acting. And it's, you know, probably the biggest blockage for me in that area is still trying to, you know, be able to just open up. But it's, and I'm aware of it, but it's so embedded because you've spent your whole life feeling it. So it's like, it's crazy, but it, it it does. It feels so good to cry. Like, it's just a relief. It's a release. And, and the people I respect are the people who can, I don't know, there's all sorts of things I respect, but I do respect people who can legitimately show their emotions. That's different from being someone who's sobbing all the time and sort of like, you know, of course, yeah. out of the scenes. You have to find ways of getting supported in that place as well. But there's something about legitimately honouring the sadnesses in our lives and giving them some some space to be to be lived and to be experienced and felt through yeah which is just so you know so healthy to do it's incredibly unhealthy to be holding on to negative emotions or putting on a front and bottling it up that's you know you i guess eventually you're just going to explode or it's just it, it can't be good for you it can't be good for you and what we often tend to do is to use addictive habit, habit patterns to steer away from from what we see as negative emotions so we'll stuff ourselves with food We'll smoke, yeah. we'll, we'll take alcohol, we'll take drugs. We'll do whatever we can to, to not be in the present. But actually, the real practice is in finding ways to be in the present, no matter what's happening, and to find the resources we can use because we're working on those resources on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. And I think people aren't educated enough about addiction and think or often look at it as just, you know, drugs or alcohol, but addiction could be anything. It can be, and people use 
you know, so many different vices on a day-to-day basis might be work, you know, over, overworking just so we don't have to think and have time alone. And that's one of the biggest things I've seen in people through this coronavirus situation. I haven't found it very hard myself because I guess, you know, I've spent my whole 20s and, you know, I'm in my 30s now doing my own projects and never having certainty and um, living in that way. But I've just seen so many people complaining to me saying, I don't know what to do and I don't, I can't, you know, when they have this alone time, they're panicking because they don't want to, they're trying to distract themselves because they actually don't want to have to be, they don't want to be able to think, which it's like, that's, we need that. We, it's like, that's the important thing. That's we, you know, that's the opportunity. That's what we need more than anything. It's like what you were saying at the beginning. It's sort of a, a cleansing in some ways that it's giving people that chance. It's, um, I, I just think, yeah, anyone listening to this, you know, it, it's so important that we look into trying to embrace that, trying to be okay, even if the thoughts that come up when we are alone are negative or confronting or painful, that's okay. It's okay. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean your life's not in a good, you know, your life's not going to be okay. It's We need to confront it. Yeah. And, and I really believe that with the, with the book, I have actually managed to sort of create a manual that would be useful for people to be able to to find practices. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to find practices and there's no the way. We have to find a practice that, that, that suits us. So I know yep. for me, with, for example, with physical exercise, I used to run and I used to force myself most mornings to get out there and run. And I never really enjoyed it. And then one day, a friend of mine invited me to take up squash. And I started playing squash and it was like, this is the way back. I can't play anymore these, the way I used to. But, um, and it was just such a delight. That mm. exercise was, was what I, was delicious. And that's what yeah. I really wanted to do. We've got to find what, what fits us and what suits us. There's no point in, in sitting and meditating every day if you've done it for a year and, and, and you know, that your mind can't still itself that way. And find yeah. something else, find a way to do it in a different way. Yeah, I think that's that's so important because, you know, I think people get, you know, we can get caught up in just forcing ourselves to do, you know, those things or f- feeling like there's a certain way it has to be done where it, there are many, many avenues we go down to, to explore that. Uh, so anyone uh, wanting to purchase your book um, and learn more about you, you know, where can we send them? So um, um, either Amazon or Penguin Random House are doing um, advanced copies of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, which will be coming out in September. Um, and my website is malcolmstern.com. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really doing much. So there's not really much for people to sign up to. I'm not really offering open courses and stuff these days, but um, yeah. I tend to work with closed groups. So um, there isn't much available, but um, I do hope the book provides a, an avenue into seeing what my thinking is, if this talk touches you at all. Absolutely. And, and we'll put the links to your website and, and for the book um, in the episode as well. So that'll be there for anyone listening to this if they want to um, find the links to it. Uh, we finish every episode with uh, these questions. Um, that we sort of do these same ones every time. So uh, these can be, um, you know, quick answers, whatever comes to mind. Um, we're just sort of like interesting to see the different answers that come up. But um, the first one here is what's your best childhood memory? It's interesting because I had to just really go into myself. I'm glad you asked that off the cuff. It was really <laughs> my dad. And actually, I realized it was actually sort of like feeling the, the love I had, that he had for me and the safety and love I had for him and us going and doing things together. I just remember sort of like um, just going off with him and feeling so important. 
Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, I love that. And that's why I like doing it off the cuff. I even saw in you answering that I can just saw when you thought about it, you can see the, um, you know, the emotion that came out of that, the, from that memory. It's, it's kind of, and I guess for, again, for anyone listening, this is a really good um, practice as well in, you know, gratitude or just thinking about, you know, we can just by thinking about something important or a memory or something we're grateful for, it can um, instantly change our psyche, change our sort of how, how we're feeling and everything. It's a, it's a really important practice. Um, what, what do you feel like is the biggest burden on mental health in society today? The having to pretend we're something we're not. The inability to actually really be ourselves and be honoured for who we are with all of the faults and foibles that we have. The having to be something and trying so hard to not be ourselves. Yeah. And so I think that the practice, the practice of becoming ourselves is, is a magical one. Yeah, I love that. I, I Yeah, completely agree. Uh, where do you see mental health being in society in 10 years time so i guess in in that question i mean do you see um things getting worse better a bit of both where do you see it all heading i mean it could go one or two ways it could get better or it could get worse but what i can see is that it's it's not necessarily the expensive solutions that are the answer it it Mm -hmm. is really about innovative solutions and um, I know that at the Compassionate Mental Health Gatherings, which I've been involved with, which I mentioned earlier, um, they did something which was all about how the patient was also part of the, of the process of them being admitted when they were taken into mental institutions. And there was some compassion and some really listening to what the patient had to say. Um, so mm-hmm. I see that, that mental health is, there is more focus on it now. And that there's high-profile people who are putting their, their their force behind it, and I think if we become a more compassionate society, and I think we're in, in an evolutionary process of becoming that, hopefully, mm. which always goes alongside with the less compassionate society that also exists there as well, um, then we have the possibility of being able to be more humane in our treatment of mental health. Stop yeah. being frightened of people who are not like us. I was frightened of Melissa's mental health issues. I was frightened of my daughter's mental, my, my sister's mental health issues. Uh, when she was 18, she had a breakdown and I lived at, at home with her and it was a horrifying thing. So I found myself frightened of mental health. And I think we've, we have to learn that actually we can support each other and to create some innovative structures to do that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I mean, I did an uh, interview actually last week with a, a big actress from North America and she talked openly about her mental health issues and OCD and these different things she's had. And she was even telling me how she's told by her managers not to talk about it. And she said, I don't care because she, she's in big shows and she said, I need to use this platform to do it. I know. And it's, that's, that's what we need because it's just insane that, um, and that's part of why I want to do this podcast as well, you know, interviewing people that um, have done things in society and profiled people and show that, you know what, these are people that have had these same sort of issues because it, it's just crazy. You know, it's interesting that without going off too much of a tangent, but it's, the, 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 the current wisdom says that one in four of us will have mental health issues in our lifetime. Actually, my philosophy is that one in one of us, every single one of us, we have mental health in the same way as we have physical health. Exactly. And our task is to, is to refine it as much as we can and to, to make sure we've got the resources to look after our mental well-being. 
Absolutely. That's what I say in every talk I do, that, you know, every single person on this planet, if you, you know, in a lifetime, you're going to have physical problems, you're going to have mental health problems of some description. It's part of, it's impossible unless you want to go and, you know, live in a cave and not be part of society. And even then you're probably going to have some sort of mental health issue if you do that. So you can't avoid it. So it's, uh, yeah, the conversation has a long way to go. It's it's great that there's awareness, but there's so far to go with with all of this changing. Um, so two more here. Um, uh, what is your personal definition of happiness? What immediately comes to me is living my sense of purpose. That's when I feel happy. I feel yeah. happy. Yeah. I feel al- aligned with myself. And happiness mm-hmm. is not a. It's not a sort of like. Now I'm happy. I'm happy forever. But happiness is, is learning to tr- to go through that that to journey through our state of mind and to recognise that when we hit the target, when we really are in alignment with who we are, there's a sense of well being and a sense of contentment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, final one. Uh, what what would you say is the most courageous thing you've ever done? Because what comes up for me is, is uh, well, actually, no, this, 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 this comes up even stronger. Um, so I left being an estate agent and I was sort of like searching other things to do. And then um, I helped organize a whale day for Friends of the Earth, which Mike Oldfield of Tubular Bells fame did a, a piece in. And Greenpeace offered me a job. And I sailed on the Rainbow Warrior with Greenpeace. And to me, that felt like I was a little boy among all these warriors. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I was in my 20s, but I didn't feel particularly brave and courageous. But it was like seeing that actually we could all do that. I mean, we were in terrible Force 12 gales in the North Sea, and I was sick a lot of the time. It wasn't a lot of fun. But it did feel like I was actually seeing what it was like to be a warrior of the rainbow, which is what, how they saw themselves in those days. I think that was the, the piece I feel that, yeah, I'm glad I had that experience in my life, even though I definitely did not feel up to the same level as some of these amazing people like David McTaggart who founded Greenpeace was on that, that that trip I was on as well yeah amazing but it probably shaped a lot of things that, that came after I guess doing doing that yeah but and I think I... probably the courage was 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 stopping being an estate agent stopping earning good money it, it, fairly easily and yeah. actually following my heart so actually that's a better I'm glad I've had time to think on that because that's a better <laughs> answer than this sort of like wow here's a boy's own adventure Actually, the reality is, was breaking free of the, of the security of the yeah. regular job and, and easy money to, to follow my heart and find what it is I wanted to do. And I did things like working in terminal cancer hospice, uh, working in old people's um, day centre, um, saying the, the rainbow with Greenpeace. So I did lots of things to try and discover who I was. And then finally, um, uh, taking a psychotherapy training and realising as soon as I walked into the, this, this group psychotherapy session, I knew that that was my path, that, that this was what I could do. And I don't know where I got that from, but it was my intuition yeah. said, this is what you are. So that, it was the bravery of leaving the known and allowing the unknown to, to challenge me. Far better than the Greenpeace story. The Greenpeace story. <laughs> yeah. They're both good, but no, I think that's a really beautiful one to finish up on. And, and you know, a great thing again, a great message to anyone listening that uh you know we can get so caught up in that fear of i'm you know i don't want to leave this security and what if things don't work out and you know we need to listen to that intuition if we do things will work out it might not 
be the smooth sailing path that we think it will be but it's going to give us meaning and give us purpose and that's you know the thing that we are all craving so i think it's yeah it's a really really great story and, and i think often the the, the smooth sailing path is is, is is an anomaly anyway because i think that mostly if something's going to be born in us we're going to struggle to get to make it whole to make it real and that's part of life and it makes things meaningful as well if we have to struggle for it and have to work for it that's that gives it meaning yes yeah Malcolm, thank you so much for having this chat. I mean, I, I, I could talk to you about a lot of these things you've brought up all day long. Um, and I really appreciate you making the time. And, you know, it's uh, I feel very fortunate to have you come and be on this show because, you know, you've done so many things. You've got an amazing story. You've got so much wisdom. And uh, I've personally just really enjoyed it and taken a lot out of this. So I just want to say thank you again for coming and uh, setting aside the time to do it. Thank you so much, Nick. That's really appreciated. And I'd love doing it. I'd be very happy to do another show with you sometime. So um, really enjoyed meeting you. And, and, and actually, I've enjoyed the dialogue. This, for me, this feels like juicy and alive. Great. Yeah, really appreciate it, mate. Thank you. This episode of Move Your Mind was produced and edited by Tim Boozer. We'd like to thank John Holland for proudly sponsoring this episode. Thanks to Malcolm Stern for joining me today for Move Your Mind. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Move Your Mind. We're going to be releasing new episodes every week and we would love it if you could subscribe on your favourite platform, leave a comment, leave a star rating, recommend us to a friend and help support us on this journey. Join me, Nick Brax, in Mental Health Masterclass where you can access cinema-quality essential mental health education from world-leading experts anytime, anywhere. Each 12-15 to minute module comes with comprehensive workbooks and a range of printable books with optional tasks behavior change tools, information, and guidance to create healthy, preventative long-term habits. Go to courses.nickbrax.com to enroll, or simply go to nickbrax.com and click on the Mental Health Masterclass icon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.